0: Man, uh, it's really good to see everyone. Uh, For those of you that know me, my wife, Erin, and I, we have uh, two little ones, one of them being our five-year-old daughter, uh, Emma, who is back there making some ruckus. I'm sure of it right now. And uh, man, living with a five-year-old brings all sorts of complexities, as many of, of, of the parents here can probably attest. One of the big complexities we've been working through lately in the Smith House has been about the complexity of language. As little Emma's vocabulary grows, she regularly uses new words without understanding them. So two two quick examples. One of them was earlier in the week, uh, Aaron and Emma went into the kitchen and they got to baking. You know, they've got the eggs and the flour and the sugar and they've got chocolate chip cookies and everything's baking. It goes into the oven. It comes out. They cool. And then there, here are these chocolate chip cookies. And Emma is all excited. She's got her milk, her cup. She sits on the table. She takes a big bite. And she looks at us with kind of this face. And she goes, these chocolate chip cookies are jealous. <laughs> I said, what? Or, or later this week, uh, Emma goes to the park. And I'm, I'm staying uh, home. And I'm, I'm working on some stuff around the house. And so Aaron takes uh, Emma to the park. And we later on, we sit down. and We start talking about like, well, how was the park? And Emma kind of like elbows mom. And she's acting kind of shy. And she's like, tell, tell dad about the boy who tinkled on me. <laughs> and I'm immediately like. Excuse me, what? And so to give away that one, at least very quickly, is the whole point is Emma's language is she's trying to fill in words. And so here's, here's the thing you can do. One of two reactions to when Emma says stuff like this. One is I can get out the dictionary on my phone and look up jealous or tinkled and I will be very concerned either about the emotional state of these cookies or like we need to call like CP, I don't know, who, to, who do you call when this is at, right? Or what you do is you stop and you engage and you ask questions. Like what do you mean, Emma? Describe the, the tinkle boy more or describe these cookies. And, and the whole point is so that as we can get more context clues, right, so I can begin to piece together exactly what you're saying. And so sure enough, with the cookies, we ask Emma to describe what she's talking about. And she starts using things like she says that they're very, very sweet or they're too much. Oh, what she calls jealous is what we would say. These chocolate chip cookies are rich. These are way too rich, right? They're way too much. Or for the little boy at the at the park is we start asking questions and she's like, well, yeah, he would come up and tinkle, and, and we're like, what are you talking? We keep asking questions, and she's like, and it would make your arm feel all fuzzy, and we're like, what are you, and oh. He, he's wearing this big thermal-like jacket, and he's, he's running around, he's building up electricity, and he was not, she was shocking. He was shocking all the other kids. Um, but the whole point was, I, that and being, and being tinkled on at the park is a completely different thing, and again, Cookies being jealous versus cookies being rich. These are two different things. Now, why I say all this is whether we are speaking toddler or any language, context clues are the way to understand a word is being spoken as the speaker has intended. In fact, the whole like reason dictionaries work is because we've all committed to using the words as they find up in the dictionary. It's kind of this unwritten rule that when I use the word word right now, your little brain and the encyclopedia that you fill in with what word means is based off a dictionary that we've all been operating with. Welcome to just like, this is the science of how language works, right? That meaning is given by what we say and what we're meaning and when someone is speaking with a meaning different than the one that we're giving, we have to look for context clues to understand what they're talking about so that we can not just understand them but then also engage with the content of what they're saying appropriately. Now this is a lot of fun like sociological brain stuff but I'll bring all this together. Over the past month, what we've been doing here as a community is we've been asking, what does the Bible mean by the word blessed? Now, this idea, this theme of blessing or being blessed is a central theme to the Bible's story, one that's so central we can't afford confusion on this, and yet so many of us bring a lot of confusion around what the word or the idea of blessing means. And so we've been looking for context clues. We don't want to just import our little mental encyclopedias of it being a hashtag or it more or less being the American dream. We want to know what did the biblical authors and what did the spirit in inspiring them mean when they talk about blessing because we want to experience that for ourselves and we want to make sure we're actually looking for the right thing. And so we've gone to the scriptures looking for, just like sitting down and asking Emma more questions, context clues. And one of the key places of these context clues is in this ancient prayer in Numbers chapter six, what's been referred to as the priestly blessing, it gives clarity of what we're talking about when we talk about blessings. You'll see it behind me. Let's read it one more time. Numbers six, beginning in verse 24, it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you Peace. Now, here it is. Don't you notice all of these blessing clarifiers? We could find them. After the word "bless." you'll see behind me here, you've got the Lord bless you, and then you've got keep you, and uh, light up his face, or make his face shine upon you, and be gracious to you, and lift up his countenance, or lift up his face is probably a more helpful translation, and five, give you peace. When we talk about jealous chocolate chip cookies, and we're not really sure what the word means, when we talk about blessing, and we're not quite sure what it means, here we have... Blessing adverbs, adjectives, little clarifiers that we understand more of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about blessing. It's talking about God keeping you or guarding you, as we looked at in the second week, him lighting his face upon you. We looked at that three weeks ago, last week with Dr. Bashir's, him being gracious to you, And, and next week with Pastor Isaac as we close this out, experiencing the peace of God. And then today, the Lord lift up his face upon you. These are these blessing clarifiers. And so today, here we are, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, or the Lord lift up his face. Now, the problem here is we're trying to get context clues to understand what it means for the Lord to bless us, but the context clue is a little hazy. What does it mean for the Lord to lift up his face on you? That sounds like jealous chocolate chip cookies to most of us. So let's slow down and just ask some questions. What does it mean when you turn your face towards someone? Well, just think through when you are holding your attention on someone. Eye contact, good eye contact, not in the creepy way, but in the good way. Is about giving your attention to someone. It's about focusing. In the midst of all the things that are going on, I'm giving my focus and my attention to you. Even Favor. Like there's, you know, that's like, or, or priority. Like when I sit down and I get down and I'm looking Emma in the face or talking to Aaron face-to-face and, you know, we're at some kind of restaurant where there are TVs and like distractions everywhere. The fact that I'm holding my attention on her face is about favor, it's about my priority, it's about the importance of the person that I'm with. When we hold eye contact, good eye contact with someone sitting down and talking with them, it's, it's, it's a way of saying without our words, right now, I'm setting you apart. Our face displays our value. You right now and what you're saying, your words matter, your feelings matter. What you're talking about matters to me so much so that in all of the things I could be paying attention to, all of my attention is being undivided set on you. To talk about the importance of this, you can also reverse this about when someone turns their face from us, all of us have experienced that maybe it's slight pain, but depending on the importance of the conversation, it can go all the way to deep hurt. When we're there having a conversation with someone about something that's maybe trivial, about how our day went, all the way to some big source of conflict in the relationship. And as that conversation happens, they look down at their phone and they start scrolling, right? And they're like, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. What, what does that communicate in that moment? I don't matter. I, I don't care. Like the proof is in the pudding and the facts are in the face. You don't care right now. You As much as you may say you do, your priority, your favor is on Instagram, it's on a dancing cat, it's on whatever it is that you're looking at. It's not on me. That's what the Why? Because our face talks. It tells the story of our attention, our priority, our favor, the importance of those we're engaging with. So then when we come back and we talk about the experience of the blessed life and that it means to experience God's face lighting up upon you and me, This is exactly how the Bible describes it. For God to lift up his face upon you and me is about God's attention to you. It's about God's priority and favor for you that in the midst of all that you're experiencing and you're going through, that when he looks at you, he gives you his full attention. God's, I'm present, I'm here, I'm committed, I'm with you, I'm engaging in the midst of all that you're going through right now. Which sounds incredible. But, If this is a clarifier of blessing, if this is one of the words that we use to describe blessing, I I don't think there's many of us here that would likely identify ourselves as blessed. Because our lives seem to say the opposite. As we go through our lives, at, at best, there are times when we feel that God is disengaged. At times, it gets so hard that it feels like God is utterly absent to us. And so this is the blessed life. What do we do when it seems like God's blessing and God's face is hidden from us? And, and not only do what do we do when we find ourselves in that place, how do we regain and find that experience of God's presence and his attention and his favor once again? And what difference does it actually make? All of this is more, is found in Psalm chapter 4. If you will turn or tap your way to Psalm chapter 4, where we're going to be for our time together this evening... Psalm chapter 4 is a prayer born out of this very experience. Out of believing and wanting that sort of experience of God lifting his face and finding in the midst of the distress and the pain of life, where do we go from here? That's exactly what Psalm 4 is all about. And so for those of you that are able, would you join me in standing as we read Psalm 4 together and we pray for our time together tonight. Psalm 4. Psalm 4. And its introductory line opens to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress, so be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. O men, or humans, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you uh, love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? So lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace... I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. So Father, our uh, desire tonight is to once again open ourselves for you to speak through your word. Uh, God, I pray that you would help us to contemplate and to hold a a closer understanding of what it means for your face to be turned on us and to turn to us, uh, specifically when it feels like you are far from us, amid our distress and our despair. We pray that you would make yourself known and then on the other side of um, our time together this evening, that you would, um, God, that you would bind us even closer to the heart of Jesus, and we would understand His heart for us. You name we pray, Amen. Well, Psalm four, go ahead, yeah, go ahead and be seated. Psalm four, as you might have seen, there has so many references and little links to the idea of the Lord's face being turned or lifted toward you. And man, the, the Lord's face being lifted toward you is very, very closely related to the Lord making His face shine upon you. And both of these things are about God's presence, God being with you, about God's blessing to us. And man, I, this past series is we've, been, we've been like we started this year off, and we're like, 2022, let's do a year, let's begin it with a, like a series on blessing. And I don't know about you, but the past couple of mo- like weeks, the past month has had more craziness, it feels like, within one month than maybe not all of the last year, but there was a good amount of it. And, and I know for me, it was just interesting that I, as soon as I stepped out and let's take a season and looking at blessing as a community, it feels like all the curses began to pop their head up around me. And so the whole question is, where do we, where do we go in the midst of that? What does God's blessing have to say as more than just an ideal that we're trying to reach, but something that we're experienced in the midst of the craziness? Psalm four, I think, is here to help us tonight. In the introductory line you might have seen at the beginning of verse four, you have a couple little notes about what this psalm is and who it's for. The first thing is that it's attributed to David. You see that there? The psalm of David. Who wrote it? David, it's attributed to King David, the king of Israel. Why did he write it? There in verse one, we get a little hint, you'll see behind me, relief in a time of distress. David is praying for relief in a time of distress. Now to play around with this a little bit, to uh, Hebrew out for a moment. This word distress and relief actually have far more going on within them than just simply like distress is like uncomfortable. In Hebrew, the word for distress is actually, it's, it's the language of something being narrow or tight-spaced, something being hemmed in or trapped or enclosed. And relief on the other side is the language of freedom, something being made wide, uh, something given room. The King James version, like, has like the in in um, what does it say? When I was hemmed in, you enlarged me, Lord. Which like enlarged me doesn't like who like that sounds like I need to go to the gym. Like that doesn't sound like a good thing. But the whole point is, this language of being tight and then being released is the language of distress. So it's far more than just uncomfort. And I remember this past week, as I've been thinking on these kind of the tight space language and being set free, I saw this happen twice in the same day. Wednesday morning, Lorenzo and I, our offices are right over by the Go Get Him Tiger in Culver, and so uh, he and I had a meeting to talk through some stuff. So we walk over, and they've got the new, this thing, because they're bringing back like, actual mugs and not just paper cups, and, um, which is awesome, because then you can get free refills. This is just uh, this is a, I'm giving this. This is for free right now. <laughs> Um, The one thing about their mugs is that they're not, like, a hand-like handle. They're, like, the little finger handles. Um, And so I'm sitting there talking to Lorenzo, and as I'm talking to him, holding it, uh, my middle finger just goes in to, like, the thing. And very quickly, I realize, like, this isn't coming out. And so I'm like, I'm like, like, I have like a cup of hot coffee, like with my fingers stuck in it, and I'm like panicking. Like, and Lorenzo's like immediately watches me go from like talking about like church stuff to just like, oh, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Like, I'm like, I'm gonna smash it. I have to break it. I'm gonna break it right here on the table. And like I'm like, I you you felt this before, I'm sure. Like that moment when like you feel trapped and you're I mean, like not a claustrophobic person, but here in public, I'm I'm now free, I'm having a panic attack because my finger's stuck in this thing. What do I do? So I'm panicking, and then sure enough, Lorenzo's like, you just, you know, with a little bit of saliva, and like, whoop, came right out, and we were fine. But man, this. No, yeah. I had to hold it. Lorenzo, save me. Like, no. Not Lorenzo's. So that was my own. Uh, so I get that out, and man, I just. Psalm 4, verse 1, like, in relief you've given me distress, immediately made far more sense to me. Of those moments in life when when everything around you feels tight and there's nothing you can do, right? And you're just like freaking out and like you're trying to like whatever, you, and it's not working. And so you just like, you freak, you, you start, you, you have nothing to do but to panic. And then to have like freedom, is like, <gasps> like you're just smiling because you got out of it. And then that same day, Wednesday night, I had discipleship group. And so I drove over to the Culver Steps to, we were gonna get dinner at Mendocino Farm and, and talk about Jesus. It was gonna be great. As I come down the parking lot, and I make my way into the open. If you've ever been to the Culver Steps, you know, you go down. And then right in the lane, there's a car that looks like it's about to pull out. So I'm like, awesome. The Lord is with me. I'm getting parking, like, in, in, in the Culver Steps. But the car is is stopped right there. It's not moving. And the doors open, and everybody gets out of the car, and they all start, like, there's clearly something going on. And so I pull up, and I'm like, hey, are you guys, le-? like, I'm like, are you guys getting out? Is this, like, one of those, like, you know, TikTok jams? You guys are dancing or something? Like, I can wait, but, like, you know... And I, I, as I get out of the car, I, I see on the passenger, or the driver's side, uh, the back tire, is like in the wheel well is like a cat that's stuck. And you immediately just hear, Wah! and I'm like, oh no, like this, this kitty cat got like gone, like this is not good. And so the cat's still up. so we're all like, what do we do, so I go get, I'm about to get my jack out of my car, he gets his out of his. So we jack up the car to make room, and this cat, is just, like, stuck there. I mean, it's literally just, like, holding on stuck there, and we're just like, ah. Uh. And so we, we jack up the car to, like, literally give it relief, to make it wide, to make room for the cat, and we pull it out, and we're kind of, like, halfway expecting, like, this cat's not going to come out in one piece. Um, it did. I'm just going to let everyone know that right now. The cat came out alive and in one piece, totally fine. But we had, the whole point was, here's this cat that had, as the car went forward, had gotten its head pinned between the, the frame of the car and then the tire, and there's nothing the cat can do. Like me in the, like, the coffee cup, just like, like just, what, what is the cat? The cat cannot do anything other than just shed in its anxiety is literally what it did. And so we get the jack open, we open it up, and the cat is now immediately like the coolest cat in the world. Like great mood, some stranger's holding him, like gonna go figure out, the uh, owner had called the parking lot security like a few minutes earlier and was like, hey, I lost my cat. So they called her back. You know, she comes down to get her cat now. The adventures in Los Angeles. But the whole point was, I was just like, I was watching Psalm 4-1 play out. Like, you have given me relief in a time of distress. And this little cat, like the Lord jacked open this, then brought the cat out. So here, here's the whole point. I'm talking about all this to say. Like, That This is the experience of what David is experiencing, what you and I have experienced at multiple times. It has not been fingers in coffee cups or cars in wheel wells, but those moments in your life when you are pinned and there seems to be nothing that you can do to get out of it. And the question is, what do you do? That's precisely what Psalm 4 is all about. What do you do when blessing, when God's face and his provision and his presence with you seems absolutely gone and there's nothing you can do? What do you do in those moments is what Psalm 4 is all about. And even more, what we find in the introduction is this isn't just a prayer of David. It's not just a Psalm of David. What does it say? That this was given to who? The choir master for him to arrange with stringed instruments. The whole point of this Psalm is that it might be your prayer too is that you, when you're in your distress, not be like, oh, that's good for David, you sing along with him and find your words getting wrapped up into this. So what is this prayer all about? In verse one is the request. What's the opening request of David in Psalm one? It is answer me when I call, or again he repeats, hear my prayer. Now this isn't him explicitly saying, lift your face toward me, but that is the essence of the prayer. Lift your face, turn your ear, hear my prayer, turn your face toward me, God. David's first course of action when he gets pinned between the frame of the car and the wheel well or whatever example we want to give, the first thing he does when he encounters that distress is he calls out to God. He actually assumes his presence and he makes it explicit within his prayer. Whatever David's going through, and what I love is that we actually don't get any notes about exactly what distress he's going through all the more reason so that you and I might apply it to whatever it is that we're going through. But David's first reaction is he begins to pray. Prayer being this place where we experience the presence of God, where he turns our, where we turn our faces towards him and, and we find his attention, his priority, his favor is engaging within us. Prayer is where this happens. And so he opens his prayer with this request. God, hear me, answer my prayer. But what's interesting is we're gonna to have to wait a few verses to find out exactly what he does pray. But we do get in verse one the basis for his prayer. Why does David have confidence that God's going to turn his face? Look at verse one. What is it? Look over it. Here, we'll do kind of what Gary did last week. What would you guys, what do you see within verse one? What is the basis of his prayer? Anyone? I hear muttering. Yes, so that's the first one, or the second one, but that's all good. Yes, Lily wins. Lily gets a candy bar now. Say you wish we had talked. I don't know, I don't have any candy. I'll find something later, I'm sure. The first one, so look, uh, Lily got the first one. Yes, you have given me relief. What is he doing here? This is past tense language. David, amid the, re- the, the distress he's going through right now, roots his confidence, his basis for his prayer in the past tense. Who has God, who has God been to him in the past? The second one to point out is that he prays to Who? He doesn't just say, answer me, God. He says, answer me, God, of my righteousness. Do you notice the personal possessive language and he's rooting it in the identity of the God who is the righteous one. He does something similar in the end where he calls on God to be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Last week, what were you talk about with, with Gary? The God who by his very nature and identity is a God who is gracious. And so here you have in the opening, the basis for David's prayer is who God is and who he has been. This is what he roots, the confidence, the basis for his confident prayer is who God is and who he's been. Why this is so challenging is because so often we flip the script. We base our prayers not in who God is and who he's been, but in who we are and who we've been or even who will be. So this implicitly shows up when, when everything hits the fan in your life and you begin to pray. And although you might not say it out loud, you secretly believe God kind of owes you because of what you did back then. Like, well, does he, you know, God, you know, you know who my mom and dad are, so I know we're on, like, a good basis here. If you could help me out with this. Or, God, you saw that one time where, like, I didn't cut off that old lady in traffic, and, like, I gave her lots of room, even though she was going 10 under. Like, God, you saw, you, I mean, like, you know, you, you owe me here. We implicitly pray this way, but this happens even explicitly where we pray things like, God, if you get me out of this, I'll never, you know, fill in the blank again. What is that? That is a flipping of the script of the basis for confident prayer we're making about who we are and what we've done as opposed to rooting it in who God is and what he's done. And so the, the confident prayer begins calling for God to turn his face to us is again, is, is not based in who you are, who you've been. It's not based in you having some kind of holy like incantation process where God turns his face because you say, beseech thee. That was a joke, It's okay like you've heard people that pray this way that like in order for god to listen almighty father we beseech thee by the infinite graces and you're just like no one's listening i think god's not even listening to you right now like he's david reveals to us in psalm 4 that when we when we hit the point of distress Those who confidently come to God are those that stand firmly in both the relational trust, God, I know who you are, and the predictive trust. God, I know who you've been as the basis for their present trust. I know who you're going to be amid my distress. You will hear my prayer. You will turn your face toward me. You are going to hear me because I know that's who you are and who you've been. And so I'm calling out, believing that you're going to hear me, and that's why I call. Psalm 4:1 begins with a confident-based prayer that shows us when, the, when it hits the road, who do you call out to, and what's the basis for that prayer? But as the prayer continues in verse 2 through 7, David's prayer shifts. You'll see behind me. He's praying in the first verse, God, we pray, you know hear me, answer my prayer, this is who you've been, this is who you are, and then he goes, oh men, like oh, oh people, oh, oh people, how long will my honor be turned into shame? How long will you... And then in verse 4, will you ponder in your hearts on your beds? 5. Put your trust. And then in verse 6, he quotes, the many who are saying, who will show. Like, who's da- David was like praying, and now he's, who's he talking to? All these other people. Might I, might I offer here? David's having a shower conversation. How many of you ever had a shower conversation? All of you. Don't lie. You're sitting there and you've got some kind of conflict or some relationship that you're trying to think through. And so you're there like as you're doing the shampoo or whatever. And you're like, you, you're just working through all of the arguments on their side and where they're coming from. And you're like, oh, no, if I say that, that'll like put them back. And they'll be like, oh, my gosh, you're right. And then you're, yeah, and then you reach for more soap, right? <laughs> David is having this shower conversation where he's, as he's praying, he begins to start having this like imaginative conversation with, the, with these people in his life. And this, these people in his life are what we could call the three groups, these three different groups of his friends. John Goldengay is a scholar who pointed out these three groups. And so just uh, to give him the credit where credit is due, he points out these three groups of friends who David reflects on as having alternate roots to the distress moment other than trusting in God, other than that prayer. So he's, he's reflecting on them. Not just so we can look into David's prayer, but it's, it's the spirit through the scriptures holding up a mirror. Asking which of the friends do you see yourself with? The first group of friends appear in verse two. We could call them the distracted. In distress, their attention shifts away from God and who he is and what he's done to vain words and, and they seek after lies is what he says. Now, now, two ways we could understand this. The first is based off the fact that it says um, right there, shall my honor be turned into Shame. The, the vain words and the lies that they're seeking after and his honor being shamed is they're, they're getting caught up in kind of these like, they're fickle, fair-weather friends who once the distress comes, they reject David, his authority as king, and they slander. They drag his name through the mud. They begin to, to drag his honor. They begin to, you know, dis- dishonor him. They shame him, lies, gossip. They're talking behind it, you know. So that's one way to read that. And I don't think that's, that's awful. There's a second way that I, it seems to me, is what we'll say, is shall my honor, think capital H, honor. And the, this honor word being, can be, it is the same word in Hebrew as the word for glory, so this can literally be translated, how long will my, my, my honor, my glorious one, be shamed? Which would be him reflecting on how long will, will, will you men dishonor God? How long will the, my honorable one, my glorious one, how long will they be shamed? Uh, there's a handful of reasons why I think this is it. One of them is all throughout scriptures, the language of vain and lies. When those are paired together, they're always talking about idols. So you go read through the prophets, and anytime time they talk about the, 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 the idols, it's always this, this language. So it seems to me that what David is actually reflecting on is not so much like, and here's the thing, maybe it's both of them. Maybe it's one of them. Maybe I'm wrong. Either way, the main point of the sermon doesn't change. I'm not building it all on this. But it seems to me that if this is the case, that what David's reflecting on is amid the distress, after he just prayed, he begins to reflect on his first friend group, and he says, you guys are chasing after not the God who he is and who he's been, but you're going after lies and vain, vanity, things that cannot offer you what you're looking for, idols. Then this would be remarkably similar to what we see Paul write about in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he talks about a time of distress that's coming within the church. He says, for a time is coming... When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions and will turn away notice the face language there from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They will seek after lies, they will chase after these. they will seek after lies and, and vain, vain words. You can translate this. So here's the whole thing. What I think this first group is going on here is amid their distress. They are shifting their attention off of who God is and who he's been, and they begin to chase and seek after, accumulate a false view of God or an entirely different God or whatever language you want to use for idolatry, something to chase after with their life as the thing that will give them refuge and relief in the midst of their distress. Whether that is their own personal distress, that? whether that is cultural pressures, whether that is you fill in the blank with the distress, the first group David identifies is the one who amid that goes, well, if, I wouldn't be feeling this if God was with me. So then they begin to turn their attention. They get distracted by myths and lies, and they chase after these things. And, and what David says in contrast, and this is once again why I think that it's not about them slandering him but about God, is in verse 3 he says, what is it? It is the holy, or as it can be translated, The faithful who God hears. It is those who double down and commit to their God to the to the Lord that he sets apart for himself that he favors that he turns his face to. Those who in distress set themselves apart for God are the ones who God sets himself apart for, that that he sets apart for himself. Those are the ones that God favors, those are the ones that his face turns to. Those are the ones whose prayer he hears. And so what David does is he's rooting this all in his own experience. He says that the Lord hears me. He says, my friends, you guys are distracting yourselves from the very person that you need amid the distress. Whatever it is that you're going through, you, you are chasing lies, you are forfeiting the one God who is actually able to help you amid what you're going through. And because of the fact that you find yourself in this moment where his face seems distant, you're giving yourself, you're, you're missing out on it. You're, you've... God will not set apart someone that's not. You see see what the the, the language that's going here, the dynamic that's developing? But distracted isn't the first group, or is the first group, but it's not the only one. In verse four, we move into the the second group of David's friends. We could call this group the demanding. And we call call them this because they're the sort of people that need to hear verse four. And what does verse four say? Be angry and do not sin. They're getting angry and sinning. (laughs) Ponder in your beds and, uh, and be silent. They're not pondering in their beds. They're like shouting it in the streets. They're not being silent, but they're giving full vent to their frustration and anger. The first group, amid the distress, look away from God. The next group, when they feel like God is absent, they believe it's all on me to get this stuff right. And so in order to get this stuff right, they become demanding and manipulative. They become maybe not um, over the top demanding and angry, but they become um, coercive. Maybe violent, actually, either physically or with their words. They become resentful. Maybe they're, not, uh, they're, they're too good to become outwardly angry, and so they just seethe with bitterness and anger. Maybe they do this with God, but more often than not, they likely do this. They, they, it overflows onto others. It overflows onto David. It overflows onto their leaders. When they feel like things are breaking down, what do they do? They become demand. They, be, they, they get angry, but they, they sin. Now, what I love, though, is that David is really helpful. David doesn't say, don't be angry, because that's sin. He says, you know what, maybe maybe in the middle of the distress, you actually do well to be angry. Maybe you have a reason for being angry. The key here is not not being angry. The key is properly handling and carrying that anger, which in verse 5 he would say is to carry that anger with trust. What does he say? Offer right sacrifices and trust in God. It's a way of saying, do what is good, do the right that you can do, and then you, 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 hand, you, you give it to God, you trust God with what, what you've got. And so holy anger here, or a trusting frustration we could call it, is where we baptize our distress in prayer, in stillness and in silence, and offering right sacrifices, and we do the good that we can actually do. Notice, I got I, I I a whole geek out session about this this week, is that we are so prone, just to thinking about this, we are so prone to one or the other. Either we trust God or we're, we're, we're doing the right things. And David here says, no, 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 in the midst of the distress of this world, you can both trust God while offering right sacrifices, while doing the right thing. And those don't compete with one another. Those exist hand in hand. We trust God as we offer right sacrifices. And so, once again, David is rooting this in his own experience that he's looking over his demanding friends and he says, my friends, your demanding reveals, in essence, your lack of trust. And in that lack of trust, you are cutting yourself off from the very posture that turns God's face. You are cutting yourself off from the very posture that receives the life and blessing of God. And then the final group of his friends appear. So, so far we've done the distracted in contrast with the faithful, the demanding in contrast with the trusting, and then finally, in verse six, we could call the final group of friends the defeated. This is the many who are saying, who will show us some good? This is a throwing up the arms amid the distress, amid all that we're going through. It's the posture of pessimism, cynicism, glass half empty, that whatever the distress is that I'm going through is insurmountable, and so who will show us some good? This is a very real posture that all three of these are incredibly realistic. That I just, This speaks exactly the heart of what we do when we enter distress. And this final group is, are those that, that, that when everything falls apart around them, when they feel like God's faces, it's not that they get distracted and they chase after anything else. It's not that they, they become demanding. It's just that they just, they just phone it in. They, they give up. They're done. And in contrast to that group, in verse 7, David reflects on the fact that it's the joyful It is the joyful who have the experience of God's face. What does he say in verse seven? You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. He says, man, even when the grain goes empty and the wine are empty, when the circumstances are low, when the distress is present, God, it is... It is this joy that you have placed deeper in my heart, not just in my heart where it cannot be touched, but it's, come, it's sourced in you being the one who has given it to me, that no matter the distress that I'm going through, I actually have a, I have a joy that is untouchable in the midst of it all. Once again, David is rooting all of this in his own experience. And so as he looks at his defrayed, defeated friends, he's like, guys, you have turned your face from the source of life amid the distress. The one thing that's going to get you through this distress is this deep-seated joy of the Lord deep within your heart. And you've, you've just given that up. And so this is, this is David's shower conversation. Is As he's reflecting on the distress that he's going through, as he reflects on the pain and the, the, that, that feeling of being tight and not knowing where to go, he simultaneously, he begins by going, God, I'm, I'm praying for God, would you hear my voice? God, I know who you are. I know who you've been. So I'm calling out, would you show up in the midst of this distress like you have in the past? And as he goes from that, he begins to think about the other ways that he he might be prone or the ways that he's seeing other people respond to the distress. He sees his friends that are getting distracted and demanding and defeated, that amid the distress, they're completely forfeiting the way to get back to God's face. of prayerfully faithful, trusting, joy, joy-filled. That, this is time and again, what is he saying? Who is experiencing? Who does God hear? Who does God turn his attention to? It's those that are trusting. It's those that are holy and faithful. It is those that are calling out. And he says, my friends, you guys have, you guys have forfeited the one thing that, that, that is there for you in the middle of the distress. And so the question is, do you see yourself in David's friends? or maybe absolutely, but, like, in this season, which which of these groups do you see yourself with? I mean, there's seasons of life where it's, like, distracted, and I don't mean that in the sense of, like, just, you know, your phone, but, like, genuinely, like, in the midst of the pressures that I feel that maybe, maybe... The God that I'm find, the God of the Scriptures and the God of the Church and throughout Church history, like the the faithful God of of what I've been given, maybe I can't trust Him. Maybe that's the problem, and so I need to go out and reconfigure and find a God who's actually going to make this far more comfortable to give me relief in the midst of my despair, or maybe it's the demanding that in the midst of everything feeling like. Like, God is not really paying attention and nobody else cares. The only way to get anybody around here to do anything that they need to do is we become coercive, we become manipulative, we become resentful. And maybe that is an outward anger or, for those of us like me, that we just let that burn on the inside. And we all look really nice and happy on the inside, but we are seething with a demanding spirit. And others of us, maybe at one time you were distracted, maybe another time you were defeated, but, or maybe just the weight of the distress that you're in is just outright defeated. As you look in the midst of this, the distress that you're facing and you're, your one line is just, who will show us any good? It's a way of saying nobody will. It's a way of saying we're on our own. So the question is, what hope is there for distracted, demanding, and defeated people like you and me? People who have forfeited and forsaken our very ability to have God's face turned back to us by the way that we turn our faces from him. A moment ago, I said that we would have to wait for David's request. And in the second part of verse six, we find it. As we move out from the shower conversation, and David returns to addressing God in prayer, calling on him. So in verse one, he says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Hear my prayer. What is that prayer verse six right there? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. This is David's prayer. If it sounds familiar, David is taking, he's he's doing his own little remix version of the priestly blessing. He's taking, make the, the Lord make his face, may the Lord make his face light up upon you, shine on you, and may the Lord lift his face upon you. He's putting those together. He's praying the priestly blessing. But the surprise, the thing that had me running laps this week is look at the pronoun of who he prays this prayer for. Lift up the light of your face upon who? Us. Who's the us? Everyone he's just been talking about in the shower conversation. All of David's distracted, demanding, and defeated friends who seem to be more like enemies at this point in his life. These are the people that David is praying the priestly blessing for, and David, as we've seen throughout, is he is the one that he has the righteous head. He is the one who's. I mean, he goes, man, you guys are distracted. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting. I'm being faithful to God, and because in that faithfulness, God hears my cry. God hears my voice. Is what he said. He moves on to the demanding friends, and he's, you guys are running out, and you're being angry and sinning. He said, man, but what I've been trying to lean into is being angry and, and not sinning, but pondering in my heart and bringing it to God in prayer. And then the defeated friends, he says, who will show us any good? And he says, Lord, lift up the light of you, right? He is the righteous like one who's actually praying and knows that the Lord's face is being turned towards him. And what's incredible is he uses that righteous status to intercede like a royal priest for his broken friends who are more like fickle friends, his enemies right now. Man, to have a friend like David, someone who is overflowing with a trusting posture toward God, someone that is faithful to who God is and is overflowing with this deep-seated joy within his heart and in the midst of all of those things is able to serve as the righteous intercessor, a royal priest to do for us what we can't to lift up the, the face of God on us. I would love to have someone like that in my life. So that, so that not only I would be able to have them in my life, but then knowing that their prayer is actually making its way toward God, that I might begin to experience the, the light of God's face and the lifting of his face on me, that I might experience that same sort of life of faithfulness to God and trusting in God and the joy of God all amid my distress to know that God's face is with me because of my righteous, this intercessor, someone praying this for me. I mean, this is, a, this is the highlight of David's life. At least it is to me. But the sad reality of David's story is though he has these marked moments like this where he's incredibly faithful and trusting and joyful, and he's serving as this righteous royal priest to do for others what they can't do for themselves. You follow his story, and he, time and again, he gets distracted. He gets demanding. He gets de- defeated. He fails and all, all amid that there's this hope of like man somebody like David and even more than that David receives this this promise from God that one is going to come from the family of David from David's line who is not just going to do everything that David has done, he's going to do it on a global scale, not just for his friends, the Israelites, but for all of the world. And not only is he going to to do that for all the world, he is going to remain faithful and trusting and joyful where David failed. And that he is going to bring his blessing to all of the world as he does that for all time because he will not just be David's son, he will be God's own son. Enter Jesus. Enter Jesus. Jesus who shows up as the righteous son of David and son of God who comes to do Psalm 4 for you and me amid you being distracted and defeated and demanding and a mess and you feel like God's face is far from you and you can do nothing to turn it back toward you. Jesus stands on the scene and prays for you. to not just turn God's face towards you, but to help turn your face back to God, to clear away the patterns which hide his face and to make his presence to you and me truly known. And more than just praying this through interceding, he does this by the giving up of his own body. Whereas Jesus goes and he dies on the cross, what's happening there? What was happening there more than the righteous one who is giving himself up for his failed friends so they might experience God's face turning toward them? In the distress on the cross, Jesus, says some of his final words were there My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is happening there? But a righteous royal priest who is entering into the failure and the, the far, feeling far from God so that he might give that to his failed friends like you and me. All of this he did in partnership with the Father as he was faithful to their plan entrusting himself to the Father for the joy set before him, as Hebrews 12 says. And through all of this, the Father did not abandon him, but as his resurrection tells us, Easter Sundays coming up, as his ascension 40 days later proclaimed, that now we have a royal priest who didn't just pray this for us once, but prays this for us continually, both Hebrews and Romans 8 tells us that he now lives, our righteous intercessor lives and is praying for us. And because Jesus is fully human, son of David, he is able to fully sympathize and empathize with whatever distress it is that you are facing. If you're in a distress where you feel like you've been betrayed, Jesus puts his arm on your shoulder and, and says, me too, as he, you know, he thinks about Judas. If you are moving through and you've got, you know, the financial troubles of what you're working through and Jesus, I mean, you just, whatever it is that you're going through right now, I, I, you just read through the Gospels and you will find Jesus at some point looking you and your situation right in the face, saying, me too. And not just saying, me too, but in your distress of what you're experiencing right now, he is interceding and praying for you. And though we don't know what he's praying as our righteous intercessor, as our royal priest, I don't think it's a stretch that it probably sounds something like Psalm 4. See, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, our royal priest, means that you and I can live our lives knowing that we have God's face lifted on us. Regardless of what our circumstances may tell us, the the reality of the empty tomb promises God's face is on us. He is with us, he is committed to us, And when that reality has been put into our heart by the Holy Spirit, that that becomes the basis of not only your prayers, but that is what keeps you from being distracted, demanding, or getting defeated. And that becomes what springs up throughout the rest of your life in faithfulness to God and trusting in Him and the joy, a joy that results in, as we close, verse 7. Verse 7, or excuse me, verse 8, where we close where David ends by saying, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety or unafraid. The psalm that talked with the graciousness in the middle had may the Lord light up his face and lift his face to you ends in peace, right? You just see the priestly blessing little clarifiers right here. This peace, like I said, the Isaac, Pastor Isaac's gonna look into more next week as we close out the series. What does it mean for us to live with this peace of God more? But as a couple little closing notes. The first is to note that though David's distress has not been resolved by the end of the prayer, it has been relieved through the presence of God. He says, you alone, O oh Lord. He doesn't say, oh, you, you took care of everything. Everything's well and done. Everything's great. He says, even in the midst of my distress, God, I can lie down and I can sleep because you, O oh Lord, have been, you keep me unafraid. You are my peace. For those who receive Jesus as our righteous royal priest, that, God, that, we, that he turns our faces to God and that we know now that God has lifted his face upon us, we are able to live and sleep in safety, unafraid, Live and sleep, you know what that is? Live and sleep, that's your whole life. No matter the distress that you're going through, you can face that unafraid with peace. And even more than that, as the early church, they regularly would refer to as death itself is because of the resurrection, they would refer to it as sleeping. Because, because now, because of the resurrection, oh, you know, grandma's just taking a nap. You know, Jesus is gonna wake her up when he returns. And so they would actually use verse seven regularly throughout church history around deathbeds. In peace, I will both lie down and and sleep for you alone. You you hold me. You keep me safe. I will move into this unafraid because of the resurrection power that I can trust in you. I can move with this kind of peace. that you You have not turned your face toward me, but you hold me safely with you. And so in any distress that life may be throwing at you right now, even death itself, we because of the resurrection, are able to face whatever it is that you're going through because we have the face of God, because we know that Jesus has been faithful, that Jesus is trusting, that Jesus is joyful, and that he is praying for us, and not just praying, that he has interceded through his cross and his resurrection, that he will return to make all things right, that we now get to live with this sort of resounding peace even in the midst of the chaos and the conflict and the distress, And that, that peace, we 100% believe, though it was achieved in, in the cross and in the resurrection, and then, yes, it will be actualized in Jesus' return, it is presently experienced. It is presently experienced. It is not just something you're waiting for. It is presently experienced as we as God's people come together with prayer and God's spirit meets us there. There is so often a, an inability to make it through our lives and our distress, and we are so prone to becoming demanding and distracting and defeated. And it is largely based on the absence of prayer within our lives and communal prayer with one another. And I am, I am 100% as guilty of this as anyone else. And I, I believe that 100%, one of the things that we see being displayed here in the life of David is the power, not just of Jesus and how he fulfills that, but how central prayer is to experiencing God's face being turned toward us and the, the wonderful delight of getting to pray that for your defeated, demanding, and distracted friends. And as we continue to move forward out of our, we've got one more week in our blessing series. One of the main things that I would pray that we wouldn't walk away from is that the blessing is experienced not just as a community, but as a community that's praying together. And so we've got another prayer night coming up soon. <laughs> um, and you've got discipleship groups, and, and, and we're gonna be praying with one another here in a little bit as we move into response. So I'll just say that... that As we close, one of the benefits, one of the incredible realities of this is not just that Jesus is praying this for you and me, but as we step into becoming the priesthood of believers, we get to spend our lives joining Jesus. As we pray Psalm 4, not just for ourselves, but we get to pray this for one another. Where you're so prone to become frustrated with with other people because they're distracted or, or they're demanding or they're defeated, David, Jesus, and the way that he treats you, would invite us to begin our first leg forward to be prayer for them, that the Lord would lift up his face on them, to see that is the thing that they're missing, and not you needing to put them right. And even more than that, we, we get to do this for our distracted, demanding, and defeated friends and our enemies. So not just for the people in this room, but for like, this, is, this is part of what it means to be priesthood and believer. We, are the, we get to now being made righteous through the work of Jesus, we step into the role of being a righteous intercessor who not just displays the face of God, but also prays for others as they are looking for it and missing it. So I, I, I don't know what else to say about, about the face of God other than this. There, there, there's a key component in finding the face of God that happens in prayer, that happens as we pray with and for one another. And as we get to walk within that, we display it to others. And that us trusting God, being faithful to Him, and having a joy that goes deeper than our circumstances, all of those things amid our distress, is one of the strongest ways that we can show people that this whole thing is legitimate. And so, with that being said, let's pray.